You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the TaxSmart REI podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about short-term rental regulations as well as other tax news and industry updates. So you're going to want to pay attention to this one if you're a short-term rental investor, because there's a lot of cities putting bans or restrictions on short-term rentals, and you're going to want to be very careful when you're investing in those markets. Today, we're going to be joined with Ryan Carrier, senior advisor on our team, who works a lot with short-term rental investors and is always making posts on LinkedIn about short-term rentals. So you're going to want to go ahead and follow Ryan on LinkedIn. If you're not already, just search for him, Ryan Carrier, CPA. You'll be able to find him, no problem. So let's just get started with the most important topic of today's episode. Dallas bans short-term rentals in neighborhoods that are zoned for single-family houses. What's your take on that, Ryan? I think it's going to continue to be more and more cities continue to do things like this. We already know a lot of other cities have done this uh, with the expansion of a lot of short-term rentals through COVID and just the revenue that people have been able to get with vacation short-term rentals in general. (laughs) I think, yeah, there's going to continue to be more, but I think as probably the short-term rental space, the vacation rental space slows down, and we're already starting to see that from 2022 to 2023, that maybe that'll slow down a little bit or just, you know, government generally is slower kind of behind the business environment. So I think there's going to be more of that coming through in cities, but it's not just cities too. Even in kind of the areas that I'm looking in, in kind of Northern Minnesota, kind of the lake country up here, essentially it can actually be kind of by locale, uh, even like kind of the lake that you're looking at. So it's not just like, hey, this is a whole city, which is huge and and, uh, a big deal, but it is even something that you need to be looking at as an investor for, hey, is the area that I want to acquire, even in this specific spot, is this even going to be feasible for me? Uh, So I think, again, there's going to be more of this. We'll see how kind of the, you know, short-term rental space continues to grow or reduce in size. But I think this is uh, continuing to be the, the trend for a lot of cities. Well, cities have to balance the economic loss with the, I guess, what local population not getting too fed up and and also edging out like new home buyers, right? Because I know that that's been like a big hot topic, although I don't know that the data necessarily supports that in most markets. There are certainly some markets where I think the data does support us, like Scottsdale, Arizona, for example, that's turned into primarily an Airbnb market. So cities have to balance how do you collect tax revenue? with keeping the populace happy at the same time. But it looks like Dallas just wanted to um, get rid of the Airbnb pro or, or reduce that exposure, which is kind of interesting. And I would agree. I think that there's going to be a lot more cities that kind of look at that and decide for themselves. So if you if you own Airbnbs in a city that has not addressed Airbnbs yet or doesn't have any regulations around it, that's where I'd probably be a little bit nervous. But I also think that if you're in a vacation rental area, such as the mountains or the beach, you've got very little to worry about because that's how they make all their money. The municipalities, the cities, that's how they make all their their tax revenue is that transient, like the travelers coming in and out of the area. Yeah, I think that the economics there are the big piece. And if we are going to a location where this has historically been, if it's been a historic vacation market 
for decades, even better, because then we know, like you said, Brandon, that, hey, this economy thrives on this and they're used to this. They've probably had regulations in place for those decades. So 100% agree. And yeah, I just think that the places that don't have that, there's a lot more risk, uh, regulatory risk. How do you hedge against that risk? Like if you're if you're buying an Airbnb in in the city that you're not really sure what they're going to do in the future, how do you hedge against that risk? I think the main thing, and yeah, Tom, if you want to jump in too, but I think the main thing is being able to evaluate and do kind of a pro forma of can this be a midterm rental and can this be a long-term rental? So kind of going through the different scenarios and options that you have to see okay, what would my cash flow look like, even if it were option B or option C? Uh, and if it's still like cash flow or maybe kind of a break even, if that's obviously kind of plan B and C, I think you just take a lot of risk off the table. So that's that's the main thing I would be evaluating. Yeah. You know, also something else too, and I this goes back to my multifamily investing days. We'd actually call up the townships, call up the local governments, find out you know what kind of jobs are coming to the area, what population trends look like. And it's kind of a similar situation here. You can get in touch with the local governments, get in touch with the local business community and find out like, what is the sentiment on short-term rentals? Are they proposing bans? Are they proposing restrictions? Do they like it? Like see what's coming up the pipeline in specific areas that you're looking in so that you can make a decision say, okay, great. It, it, does it look like there's going to be a ban here? Is it likely that's going to happen? That's another way you could kind of hedge against your risk just by kind of digging into the market and figuring out like, is this likely to happen in the first place? And your realtor is going to be a huge piece of the equation. It has been for me because I'm, I'm working with a realtor kind of where I want to. And uh, in having my first kind of initial conversation with him, he's been like, hey, all of this area generally is good, right? This is a vacation rental market, but we need to be careful about this lake, this lake, this lake, this lake. And I was like, whoa, I had no idea that it was that specific. So having that realtor in place, that's going to be very important to kind of know someone who knows that market specifically and can help you navigate kind of those, even just down to the little nuances there, not just the overall bigger, like, hey, this is a vacation rental market, but knowing even more specifically, like, I want to look at this place. Oh, that lake actually might not be a good option because there's higher regulatory risk, even in just that that one little spot. So the realtor is a big part of the equation for you. Another thing to think about, too, is you could always uh, switch to midterm rentals. Uh, it does kind of depend on the location, obviously, but we have quite a few clients who are close to like hospitals and they crush it in the midterm rental space. So, you know, I, I love the idea of looking at multiple ways that you can make money with the short term rental. If you're buying a short term rental, obviously, if if the short term rental revenue projection makes the most sense you go that route but knowing that you can have multiple backup plans in case something happens is is a really good idea really smart idea well, something else i just wanted in there too which is really interesting about the, what happened in dallas so they they banned them in areas zoned for single family housing right they did not ban uh, short-term rentals in areas for multifamily or commercial zoning right they also added the same taxes and fees that hotels are going to have to pay to owners of Airbnbs, right? So what it seems like the city, in the case of the city of Dallas, they're more or less treating it like a hospitality or hotel business, and they're going to restrict it to areas that are zoned as such, pretty much, right? So multifamily and and commercial. So I think that's something to keep in mind. If you're investing in areas that has commercial zoning, where you might normally find a hotel, that might be another type of area you might want to invest in if you're considering, okay, I want to invest in this market, but I want to reduce my risk. How can I do so? Invest in the commercial zones, less likely that you'll get regulated. But of course, there are no guarantees. 
Yeah. And one last comment on the midterm rental thing. I mean, Bigger Pockets had an episode on that fairly recently, kind of talking about the growth of the midterm rental. I think probably as the short-term rental uh, market kind of declines. So I, I think there's going to be kind of this like switching, maybe back and forth over time. But there's a cool episode, but a lot of cool things that you can be considering. And it just seems like this space, the midterm rental space is becoming more competitive. And so similar to the short-term rental market, it's like at first it was, hey, I could just rent out a room in my house, right? And then over time, it became more and more sophisticated and the you know level of quality needed to go up. I think there's probably kind of a similar shift going on with midterm rentals as well, where it's like, hey, I can just have you know this play but the quality is going to continue to need to go up. Uh, so I'll be interested to see just over time, you know, maybe this like change uh, in the balance of short-term rentals, midterm rentals and whatnot. Uh, I just recently saw, I think it was Phoenix or something, uh, kind of a list of different cities that have uh, dropped in their revenue uh, projection just from 2022 to 2023. And basically some of the top have been declining by about 50% in revenue. And that that was multiple different cities. So we'll just yeah continue to have to keep our eye on the market there. And that's very important for investors. So as you're thinking about maybe even acquiring a property this year, it needs to be an evaluation of what does the market look like now? Whereas I think a lot of investors are looking at 2022's numbers and taking that into consideration. No, I think we have to be looking at what are the numbers now and making sure we're clear on that. 100%. 100%. So shifting gears a little bit away from short-term rentals, uh, this stuff is all very important. So glad we were able to discuss this today. I know there's a lot of short-term rental investors who listen to this podcast. But something else that you might be interested in knowing is that the House introduced the Build It in America Act uh, a few weeks back, which would extend 100% bonus depreciation from 2023 through 2026. So in other words, there would be no phase down of 20% per year. And I know that's great news or could be potentially great news, assuming it passes for real estate investors, especially people who are investing in short-term rentals who can use the short-term rental loophole, or maybe you have long-term rentals can use the real estate professional status. Uh, this is certainly uh, welcome news. Yeah. And I was talking with a client recently for those of you know our clients or listeners who are in opportunity zones, uh, that, that could be kind of important depending on how you might be timing these next couple of years of acquisitions and thinking about doing, you know, cost segregation studies and then maybe kind of deferring, uh, taking advantage of that bonus depreciation in 2026 when this whole gain is going to come due, right? And there's, there's changes that could be coming there. And I know we're not focused on opportunity zones today, but that has significant impacts, not for just like year to year. But even for things such as like opportunity zones and kind of timing uh, some of those losses for you as well. So that is going to be huge for our industry, for sure. And I'll be interested to see if that actually comes to, to fruition. I think everybody who's probably listening to this podcast wants that to pass. So we will see. We'll keep everybody updated. Uh, so stay tuned. If you're not already subscribed to our newsletter, uh, you could head on over to www.taxsmartinvestors.com and you can uh, subscribe to our newsletter there so that you can stay up to date because we'll probably be releasing updates uh, through the newsletter. So if you want to hear it first, uh, go ahead and subscribe there. So some other things we want to bring up today, also recently in the news. So uh, credit investors. So we got requests all the time from clients to write credit investor letters. And if you're looking to invest in private placement opportunities, so in other words, real estate syndicates and funds, you typically, uh, most offerings these days are 506C offerings, which means that you need to be an accredited investor to invest. And up until 2020, 
the primary way really to become a credit investor was to have income of $200,000 or more for the last two years with the expectation of earning the same amount in the third year or $300,000 if you're married or a net worth of $1 million or more excluding your primary residence. That was the way to become accredited. However, in 2020, the SEC passed a rule allowing people who hold certain securities license, the Series 7, uh, the Series uh, 6, 5, and 8, 2, to become accredited if they have licenses in good standing. But now the Equal Opportunity for All Investors Act was passed on May 31st, and that would instruct the SEC to create an exam program for investors to become accredited. So in other words, there'd be a study program. You'd go ahead and study for the exam. If you pass the exam, you now have the knowledge and expertise in the area of private investing to become accredited and to invest. And they did this because they wanted to take away the restrictions for people who are wealthy effectively. Just because you make more money doesn't mean that you're a good investor. Or just because you have more money, if it's a test based on net worth, doesn't mean you're a good investor. Basically, I, I think I see uh, why they had this in place, but ultimately, yeah, I think it should be based on knowledge, not just do you have money or do you make a lot of money? So I'm interested to see how that comes through. Yeah, totally agree. I, I do think that to a certain extent, it's your money to lose. So so I, I understand the income threshold. I understand the net worth threshold. At a certain point, if you've got the money to lose, then it's your money to lose. But I also think that the income threshold and the assets threshold potentially unfairly disqualifies people who are sophisticated enough to make smart decisions with private placements. So I'd like the change. I think that it's a good change. I also think that the probably the income thresholds and the asset thresholds probably need to increase. I don't know. When, when were they put into place? It was the 80s. It was the 80s. The 80s. I mean, yeah. and it has always been the same, the same. Yeah. As far as I'm aware, okay, as far as I'm aware, it has not changed. There was actually a much right. higher bar back then. Right. So in the 80s, the income threshold and the asset threshold are probably a, like a reach, right? It probably took you what, half your life or most of your life to achieve that. But today, in today's world, with an, I mean, inflation alone, yeah, I think that that probably, like if the original idea was to make sure that it's really wealthy people that take these risks and get into it. If they get into problems, it's not that big of a deal because they have a lot, of, a lot of other wealth. Then they probably need to look at increasing the income and the asset thresholds. But that's just my opinion. I my think, uneducated opinion, by yeah, the way. It's just I think they opinion. should take away the income and asset thresholds entirely and just say you need a pet. Yeah, but if you do that, th think, think about that, though. Think about that. Okay, we're going to make everybody take an exam. You would kill the private placement yeah, economy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fair. Fair. Right. That'd be a wild change because so many people are just so used to doing it at this point that it would. Yeah. I, I guess you know what. To your point. Yeah. If you have the money to lose, then it's your money to lose at that point. And then if hey, but if you want to get involved and you're under the thresholds, then yeah, you take this exam. You prove that you're educated enough on the way that these things work. You know, understand all the risks that you're taking. Then sure, you, this all makes sense. It makes sense. I don't know if they should increase the thresholds, but. I don't know if I agree with that. 100%. Well, they haven't. Have they changed since the 80s? No, no. Well, OK, no. But now I mean, they, how much inflation have we had since the 80s? Right. Like a lot. I don't know. I don't how much know how much has wage inflation increased? Because because back in the 80s, what, what was the median wage is probably a heck of a lot lower than it is today. The median wage in 1985 for working families was twenty nine thousand dollars per year. What was it today? It's around fifty six thousand. Fifty six thousand. So it's doubled. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go, right? So we're still going to use the same income and asset threshold. I think you should double it. If the whole purpose was to prevent 
less sophisticated and less financially um, stable. Like, again, I think the whole purpose of these rules was to prevent less sophisticated and less financially stable people from losing their shirts in these private placements where, you know, you're investing in operators who can talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. You know, they market really well and we still see it today, right? You got these great capital raisers. Dylan actually just made a post on this on LinkedIn. I loved it. Dylan's one of our newer employees and he's posting every day on LinkedIn like Ryan is. And he posted the other day about like, who do you want to invest with? You want to invest with a syndicator that is really great at raising capital or a syndicator that's really great at operating. So you still got people that are amazing at raising capital. They can market, they can talk, but they can't necessarily operate effectively. You know, they got bridge loans, which we're going to be talking about with JC here in a few weeks. And 2024, that floating rate debt's going to bite people, I think. But the point is, the whole purpose of these rules was to prevent less sophisticated and less financially stable people from losing their shirts. So if that was the purpose, and again, this is my uneducated opinion, I've done like, you know, an hour of research into this stuff. But if that was the purpose, then why not double the income threshold in the asset test? You know, that was the, you know, you're right. No, that is the purpose. The purpose was basically the thought process behind this was if you were at those levels, 200,000 or 300,000, if you're married and then of income or a million net worth, that you were financially savvy enough to understand it because you were able to reach that point. So by being able to reach a point in the secondary point to your point is like, okay, also when you have that level of income, you have the discretionary income, you have the money to lose, right? Like you said before, if you were to invest $50,000 in the syndication, you were to lose that $50,000 and you met those requirements, chances are you're not, it's not going to kill you financially, right? So bottom line is they were put in place as safeguards. And now the SEC is looking to, or excuse me, the house is looking to have the SEC expand those rules for people who are willing to take an exam and to be able to prove that they have the knowledge and are aware of all the risks to to invest in such private placements. So we'll keep everybody posted on that as that comes about. I'm sure you'll hear about it online as well. But there's some other interesting things coming up in the news too. One last thing I think we wanted to cover today, and that is the new clean vehicle tax credits, right? So we get a lot of questions around those, especially around people who love Teslas. All right. So basically what this credit does, the new clean vehicle credits, is it extends uh, the $7,500 credit out to 2032 if you purchase an electric vehicle that meets certain requirements. So in order to qualify, you must buy it for your own use and not for resale. It must be used primarily in the United States. And in addition, there are some modified adjusted gross income requirements that you cannot exceed. So it's going to be $300,000 for married couples filing jointly, $225,000 for heads of household, and $150,000 for all other filers. So if you meet that criteria, you're going to be in good shape for the new vehicle tax credit. So there are some criteria that the vehicle needs to qualify for itself. And that is having a battery capacity of at least 7 kilowatt hours, having a gross vehicle weight rating of less than 14,000 pounds, and must be made by a qualified manufacturer, undergo final assembly in North America, and meet the critical mineral and battery component requirements as of April 18, 2023. Okay, so those are just a few of the criteria that you need to be aware of if you're considering the new vehicle tax credit. If you're going to be buying a vehicle, you definitely want to make sure you touch base with your tax pro to make sure that you qualify for the credit. The vehicle that you're considering acquiring qualifies for the credit, but it is a nice credit to have. So if you are considering an electric vehicle, definitely want to take a look into it. There's also now also a new in 2023 a used clean vehicle credit that's up to four thousand dollar credit tom you were just mentioning the seventy five hundred dollar credit 
this is for vehicles that are less. Uh, the cost is less than $25,000. Basically, you take uh, the credits equal to 30% of the sale price of what you bought it for. But then again, it's up to a maximum of $4,000. So that's also new. So it's not just uh, new, uh, but this is for used uh, vehicles as well. So be considering that too, if you're even looking into something that's used. It doesn't have to be, uh, you don't have to be the first person to use it. So that'll be interesting uh, as well to see that. For sure, for sure. And then there's another one for commercial vehicles. We're not going to touch on that today in today's podcast, but if you're basically buying vehicles for business, there's a whole nother set of rules for commercial vehicles. However, there's a $7,500 credit if the vehicle has a gross vehicle weight rating of 14,000 pounds or less. And then if the vehicle has uh, is over 14,000 pounds, there's up to a $40,000 credit. So again, uh, if you're considering electric vehicles, uh, a lot of tax benefits for them, definitely want to touch base with your tax pro, make sure that you qualify and the vehicle qualifies and you know all the rules and how that all plays together. Um, before we wrap up today, is there any other news or anything else you want to bring to the table, Ryan, Brandon, before we call it a day? Okay, yeah. Did you see the whole uh, thing that's going like Twitter's going viral right now with uh, the pending collapse of Airbnbs? Did you see all that? I did not see that when that come out today. Yeah. So I don't remember who originally posted it, but basically it's somebody that had like, I, th I think he's like a YouTube influencer or something, but he posted some data that is apparently fake data, <laughs> but it doesn't matter because Twitter, Twitter took it and ran with it. Um, but he basically showed that the rev par, the revenue per available rooms has decreased like 40% in the top 10 cities. And he listed the top 10 cities. And later, the reason that, that I say it was fake data is because the senior vice president of some sort of research analytics or something over at AirDNA, we should actually get him on the podcast. That'd be cool. Um, he went and posted on Twitter. And I'm sorry, like I, I saw his name, but I don't remember his name. And I'm like, I'm just kind of running with this. So I apologize if you're listening to this. But anyway, it was a really cool tweet. He posted on Twitter the actual data from AirDNA and the rev par was only down like 3%. But anyway, it was um it, it was just an interesting like whole conversation that was going on cuz tons of people like took it and ran with it and they were like, "Oh, yes, finally the short-term rental owners are toast and Airbnb the crash is here and we're finally going to be able to afford homes and all this stuff." And I just think that even if the rev par, even if the revenue, let's move away from rev par, even if the revenue on all these Airbnbs is substantially down, which I don't think it actually is. And I think that we can, you know, we don't have data on that that we can necessarily speak to confidently, but we work with a lot of clients that have Airbnbs and we don't see them struggling. So like, like the problem, I think at large here is that even if the revenue was down substantially, it still doesn't matter because people that are earning really good money are buying Airbnbs right now and have been for the past few years. Some some of them, a lot of them, I think it's like over 50% are buying cash. They're not even financing. So it's like, even if your revenue tanks, you're still good. You can still manage the debt. That's the point that I'm trying to make. I don't see any sort of massive Airbnb collapse coming, even if the revenue is down 40, 50, 60% because, and you got to imagine too, you got to remember that the rates spiked uh, middle of 2022. Well, everybody that's like buying these Airbnbs bought them in 2020 and 2021 when rates were still 3%. So like, like their monthly mortgage payments are so low that they're not under duress. The people that were buying these homes, they have good income. 
They have great credit, uh, and that is supported by data. It's not like the 07, 08, 09 bust where anybody could just go and get these floating rate loans to lock in all sorts of different investment properties. This is not the same market that we have. It's not the same. The credit channels are different this time around. And uh, I just think that people hoping for some Airbnb crash, like hope is not a strategy. And I don't think it's going to happen, even if the revenue is down so substantially, because people can afford to carry the properties. You might see like in certain areas that are really heavily Airbnb and, and the demand is really tanked. You might see them. You might see some offloading. I'm not going to be some offloading, but I don't think that there's going to be a substantial crash by any means. This market is not like 07 and 08. I think that people carry their properties. I think that uh, lenders were much have been much more conservative. That's supported by data as well. I just don't see it happening. Yeah. Well, earlier I mentioned revenue per average listing being down 50%. Obviously, I was looking at the wrong data. So whoever is editing this uh, should definitely look at that <laughs> and remove that part. Uh, because now I, I do that. see that that is uh, disputed. So my takeaway is we got to be careful of the data we're looking at. I don't uh, know. I just know that the RDA guy came on and was like, that's incorrect. So, you know, yeah. you're right. Like there's different sources, but it's also market specific. So you might be totally, you might be right. But what I'm trying to say is that even if that's true, you can carry the debt. Yep. What I've been seeing in my own is more like a decline of five to 10 percent. So when I saw 50 percent looking at this list and I'm like, yeah. I'm not on the list. It's, uh, it's these other kind of bigger markets where it's been so saturated. But yeah, if if you're seeing that, I'm seeing that, and other people are kind of disputing this whole 50, you know, that's that's very interesting. But yeah, I'm seeing that in, in where I am. But I'm still, if I look to acquire at the end of this year, I'm still going to be thinking about, okay, what are the current numbers? And even if I get 5%, 10% less than that, do I sell cash flow? Is this still a viable option for me? And then thinking through midterm rental, long-term rental, all those other things that we were discussing yeah. earlier yeah. Uh, as well. But yeah, the data is uh, yeah interesting. You just got to be careful what you look at. If this. revenue was really down 50%, we would be hearing about it from our clients because they'd all be wanting to sell their properties or, or they'd be thinking about it, right? And But again, like I guess what I'm trying to say is they might think about selling their properties. They might want to explore that option, but I don't think that they're going to be forced to liquidate. That's the difference. I think a lot of people are like, oh, revenue's down. So find these Airbnb people are going to be forced to sell because they're not. I just don't think that's true. It might be true in certain localized markets. It might also be true in places like this where all of a sudden you're not allowed to Airbnb. That I see is like that that existential threat to um, to anybody that owns Airbnbs. But yeah, anyway, it was just an interesting like Twitter really took and ran with that. I'm talking like tens of millions of views between all these viral posts that are talking about, yeah, screw the Airbnb people uh, or Airbnb investors. But I just don't see that playing out in reality. There's a guy uh, who I highly recommend. If you are listening to this and you're like, okay, Brandon, like you keep referencing data, but you don't know what data you're talking about, which is true. I'm not a real estate. I'm not a housing analyst. I'm a CPA. But there is a guy that I highly recommend following. His name is Logan Motoshami. He is the lead housing analyst for uh, Housing Wire. And I follow him on Twitter. Uh, he always posts data. Uh, it's amazing. Like this, like I've learned so much over the past six months um, talking to him. We should actually try to get him on the podcast because he's a he's a really fun guy to listen to. But he's got he, he gets on like a podcast with Housing Wire a couple times a week. 
and then he's got like a blog and he's also got his uh his twitter feed that he posts stuff on but logan motashami is his name great great guy one of the one of the few people that i have found that posts data on a consistent basis and um it just tries to talk very objectively about what's going on in the housing market and so following him has led me to believe that one we're not going to see a housing market crash because inventory levels are just so extremely low demand has come down a lot because interest rates have increased but the reality is, is that you're still seeing bidding worse because demand is so low but also credit channels are a lot better like people who uh, can actually afford homes or buying homes. Um, and people who cannot afford homes are not buying homes. People with bad credit are not buying homes. And that's unlike 07 and 08, where people who could not afford homes and who had bad, bad credit were buying homes. So when you kind of like look at all that together, you realize, hey, yeah, we're, we, we have an unhealthy housing market because our supply is so low, but we're not going to see a crash, you know, unless there's some macro black swan event that happens. Right. So kind of the bottom line, the moral of this podcast is is mitigate risk. Okay. The world's not crashing. Short term rental market's not going to tank, but it is being regulated in certain markets. So you just definitely want to be careful. Make sure you do your due diligence before acquiring a property. You also want to make sure that you when you acquire that property, it's financially stable because who knows if the revenue does tank, which it doesn't sound like it will. You might be left holding. Well, well, well. Hold on. Revenue might tank, right? Uh, I want to be. I want to make sure. Okay. <laughs> I want to make sure my, my rant was clear. Revenue might, but I don't think that's going to lead to a mass sell-off. That's what I'm trying to say. I think you will see people try to trade properties, but even if you tanks, I don't think that you're going to see a ton of investors under duress because these investors can afford the properties. They can afford to carry them. A lot of these investors did not even leverage the property. They don't even have debt. The ones that do have debt, they're sitting at 2.83% rates. So their payments are really, really low. I just don't think that you can look at the current environment and say, oh, a 7% rate is what all these guys have. And so they're not going to be able to afford the mortgage payments if their revenue drops 50%. I just don't see that happening. You know, I, I think that people are going to be able to carry these properties for a long time. They might offload them, but I don't think that it's going to be this like, oh, next month you're going to see millions of Airbnbs being offloaded unless it's some sort of situation such as a Dallas where net starting, you know, whatever date, uh, no more Airbnbs. Right, right. All right. So we covered a lot in today's episode. Safe investing, everybody. And we'll catch you on next week's episode of Tax Smart REI. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients. And with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.